In this episode of The Wharton Current, host Ellie McDonald sits down with Derek Warnick, the co-founder and CFO of Electric Hydrogen. Join us as we talk about the booming hydrogen space in the United States, Electric Hydrogen's unique business model, and the implications of the Inflation Reduction Act on climate tech. Hi, everyone. This is Ellie McDonald, host of The War and Current. I'm excited to be here today with Derek Warnick, the co-founder and CFO of Electric Hydrogen, a green hydrogen startup in the climate tech space. Derek, thank you for joining us on our podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in your current role as CFO? Sure. First off, thanks. Thanks very much for for having me on today. It's certainly an exciting time in in climate tech, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'd say for myself personally, uh, but for my background, I'm formerly a World Bank guy, International Finance Corporation, really focused on classic development and kind of economic opportunity work. I decided I really wanted to be more focused on on technology and started to get really interested in sustainability and and kind of the the effects of climate change and, and really the early 2000s and decided to come back and, and get my MBA. I did not get into Wharton, so I had to settle for for MIT Sloan. It, it ended up working out just fine for me. It, it was a great experience, um, but uh, congrats and kudos to everyone who did get into Wharton. I, I've spent, since my MBA, I've spent uh, kind of almost the last, must be 15 years now in clean tech and climate tech. Part of that, I was a power developer out of Houston, the CFO of a, of a power development shop out of Houston for about five years. And uh, most recently, spent the last two years prior to, to co-founding Electric Hydrogen at Gates and Bezos, a clean tech venture fund, uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, really focused on, I think, some of the, the, the coolest companies and opportunities out there. And I had an opportunity there to, uh, to meet uh, Dr. Dave Eaglesham, one of our co-founders here, who was the, the first CTO of First Solar, took them public Know, grew grew that company to uh, however many thousands of employees, how I many billion dollars of revenue that they do each year. And uh, Dave had a great great background. and was very focused on very focused on hydrogen, and uh, you know particularly how ultra efficient electrolysis at really low pricing could could turn and convert renewable energy you know into this this wonderful resource. And for me, I've I've always always been on the the, the finance side, kind of the, the intersection of of green energy, of, of climate tech and finance. And so it was, a, it was a natural fit to, to partner up with Dave and, you know, Rafi Garabedi and also another former CTO of First Solar, Dorian West, one of the really, really early employees at Tesla to kind of get the initial team going and been, been really happy with what we've been able to, to accomplish so far and looking forward to chatting with you more today about hydrogen. Thanks so much for sharing that, Derek. We've actually had a few folks from the Breakthrough Energy Venture team on our podcast, and they've been a great crew. So we're excited to chat with you and learn more about electric hydrogen. Right now, there's a lot of buzz around hydrogen. So would you mind quickly reviewing the basics of what is being dubbed the hydrogen rainbow, specifically the key differences between green, blue, and gray hydrogen? the three colors we are seeing most actively in the U.S.? Sure. Happy to do that. It, it's, a, it's a question that comes out a lot. You know, there's, there's green, there's blue, there's gray, there's pink and gold. And there, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of colors in, in, in the hydrogen rainbow. I think maybe the most important point is 
this this color wheel or this rainbow creates these labels that that are a little confusing and these colors can kind of oftentimes obscure what what matters at the end of the day which is the the carbon intensity or the carbon impact of the hydrogen itself we we at electric hydrogen really prefer the term fossil free hydrogen to not confuse this or that or the other i think the the big the big colors that people talk most about are, are green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is, is the process of using renewable energy to split water through electrolysis, freeing the hydrogen from the oxygen, and then you have the hydrogen available for useful chemical work or to be burned for thermal energy, where it just turns back into water. So that's green hydrogen, renewable energy producing you know, hydrogen via electrolysis. Blue hydrogen is the process of, of taking natural gas and basically cracking that into the constituent components of hydrogen and the carbon. The carbon combines with oxygen, creating CO2, the, and then capturing that CO2 and doing something with it. There's a little bit of kind of ellipses and question marks of how you capture it, how you store it, how you safely do that for, for long periods of time. But that's blue hydrogen, where the carbon is not emitted in the form of CO2, it is captured and stored. And gray hydrogen is, is really that same process where the, the CO2 just ends up in the atmosphere. So that's, that's how hydrogen is mostly made today. And I think a, a, what a lot of people are, are now becoming more aware of is that the world actually produces a, a heck of a lot of hydrogen now. Hydrogen is a very important part of many industrial processes. But right now, that's, you know, that's taking natural gas and, and just using a process called steam methane reformation, a fancy way of of, of heating it up and, and, and freeing the, the CO2 and the hydrogen. And that's a process that is, is not environmentally friendly at all, which is why as we think about these different colors, you know, green or blue or, or turquoise or these other things, if you start with fossil fuels and they are involved in the process, that's fundamentally not a, a process that we are excited about that has long-term sustainability. We also believe that that uh, what is classically referred to as green hydrogen, or as we like to think of fossil-free hydrogen, there's also a strong economic advantage over time that can be realized there, which is very different than a process of using you know, dead dinosaurs that you've dug out of the ground. The economics there are pretty well known and probably not something that's over time going to become much, much better. Certainly. And I think for folks that are familiar with the hydrogen space, they are aware that green hydrogen is relying on water, which some people predict is going to be a commodity in the future, but it's not as of right now. So you do have that resource more readily available, both from an environmental and an economic perspective. And I think that's really helpful background to lay the basics from the hydrogen industry. So thank you for sharing that hydrogen rainbow overview. Moving on to the next question. In your opinion, what hurdles have prevented hydrogen from scaling quickly in the U.S.? And how do you think they can be overcome? Absolutely. I think that hydrogen so far has been almost entirely derived from fossil fuels. It, as you mentioned, it is extremely important, important uh, component of things like ammonia for fertilizer and, and other uses, as well as other heavy industries, uh, production of, of cement, of steel, other chemical processes use a great deal of, of hydrogen. I think that the transition to green hydrogen or fossil-free hydrogen, those types of facilities, I'll go into a little bit about why that's been challenging. 
There's also the second, the second part of this journey, which is industries now that are directly utilizing fossil fuels that may in the future be able to utilize hydrogen instead, if it were actually cheaper and actually fundamentally better for the environment. So there's a huge opportunity to directly replace fossil fuels in many industries. But starting with the industries today that are heavy industries that, that utilize hydrogen, the, the reason that green hydrogen, fossil fuel, fossil free hydrogen has not been more accepted has been cost. It is much cheaper to take natural gas historically to split that into hydrogen and use that. That has fundamentally come down to the cost of renewable electricity is only now low enough where you could conceivably make hydrogen via electrolysis with renewable energy at price points that are competitive with fossil fuels. So with that ultra low cost electricity coming from renewables that's now available, it's finally been, become time to innovate on the technology to the point where the costs of the electrolysis systems are indeed low enough to be competitive with fossil fuels with the hydrogen that they create. So that's, that's really what's happened now is renewable energy is cheap enough where this could be possible. So now companies such as Electric Hydrogen have put in the work to develop the technology that enables the finished product to be at a low enough price to make this actually work. And I think another point I'll highlight is that really cheap renewable energy, some folks like to talk about, you know, electrify everything, which is actually a concept that we, we fundamentally believe in. It just happens to be that that ultra heavy industry can't run off a battery. There are plenty of processes, particularly ones that involve the use of chemical energy, like the production of fertilizer, that really lean themselves more to towards the use of chemical energy in the form of hydrogen or ultra high grade heat that hydrogen provides. And so, yeah, we'd love to electrify everything. It just so happens you want to take that renewable energy and convert it into an, a, a storage medium such as hydrogen, uh, which is embodying that solar or wind power as, as probably the best mechanism to deploy it. And I'm sure this will come up later in the conversation as well. But uh, the world runs off of liquid and gaseous fuels right now. And that's because they make a lot of sense to transport and consume. And so there's a path in the future to do that without using fossil, fossil fuels. And that path goes through creating hydrogen from renewable energy in a fossil-free manner and really enabling us to, to use the, the infrastructure that's already in place but do that in a much more sustainable way, both from an environmental standpoint, but also from an economic standpoint. Derek, I think that's a really relevant point. Industries that are tapped to decarbonize are back of minds for a lot of people. People see cars every day. They see their homes light up from electricity. But we aren't always thinking about cement production or steel production. Those processes that happen behind warehouse doors. Moving on from the general hydrogen landscape, I would love to talk more about your company, Electric Hydrogen. I first learned about electric hydrogen through a great Bloomberg article written about your Series B this past June. Congratulations, by the way. I really think your business concept is fascinating and sets your team apart from other green hydrogen startups. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about your company, maybe walk us through your company's thesis and where you fit into the marketplace overall? Thank you. I appreciate that. So... Electric hydrogen, really, what we are doing is fundamentally creating next generation electrolyzers 
that are able to produce hydrogen by splitting water with renewable energy, as we discussed, creating this classically defined green hydrogen at price points that is competitive with the marketplace that we live in today and competitive with fossil fuel. What we believe is that heavy industry accounting for, you know, upwards of 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions is one of the most important areas to focus decarbonization efforts on. And, and we are a deep decarbonization company charting the fastest path to cost competitive fossil free hydrogen, bringing it to these industrial sectors like ammonia, like steel, like chemicals. And cost is the mindset that we, we take here because the, the profit motivation that, that companies for-profit businesses have, it's bad in some ways is that it's created negative outcomes when the externalities like environmental harm and, you know, greenhouse gas emissions haven't really been taken into account in that equation. But it's good because it's very clear. We know that businesses will do whatever is cheapest and they will also, in some cases, take into account the, the negative effect, effects of, of kind of going to that low price. But if we can produce a commodity or produce technology that is able to produce that commodity in a way that is substantially better for the world that we all live in and at a price point that's cheaper, the world will switch relatively quickly. The, the chair of a, the board of a, an industrial conglomerate is very focused on things like investor dividends. That matters. And if you're producing a, a commodity like steel, I think things like green steel, the concept, there will be a place for that in the future. But now cost is what wins. So if we can help produce technology that are really fundamentally able to deliver a, a better a better product, something that is better for the world at a lower price, we believe that that's, that's going to enable us to, to move quickly and enable the world to change relatively quickly. And, you know, as I mentioned in an answer here earlier, the world has a lot, trillions of dollars of existing infrastructure that's built on moving energy containing gases and liquids around. Hydrogen is a mechanism to provide renewable energy, a means to also be transported in the form of liquids and gases. You've got to get it into a molecule. Hydrogen's where you start, and that can go to things like ammonia or producing what are termed electrofuels like methanol that's been derived by combining renewably produced hydrogen with, say, CO2 from direct air capture otherwise. But uh, the, cl the, the closer that we can come to use up utilizing the world's existing infrastructure with cost-effective, renewably derived hydrogen, the better off we'll be. So that's the thesis of, of the business that we've built. And I think that we also are very focused on the scale of our solution. Industrial applications are big. No one builds, you know, small oil refineries. No one builds, you know, uh, little tiny factories. That's not how you get to little steel mills. That's not how you get to the economics that work on a global scale. So our solution is really built on developing an application that is fundamentally far larger than the world's existing, you know, one megawatt and five megawatt electrolyzers. Our solution is is far larger with a minimum plant size of you know, 100 megawatts. That's the scale that customers are really focused on and what makes sense and where the economics start to work. So I guess that's a long way of saying industry is big and focused on cost. And that's why a solution for green hydrogen needs to also be big and focused on cost. Yeah, I think to your point, Derek, a lot of these industries 
that are tough to decarbonize are also living on incredibly thin margins. And so not having economies of scale in a green hydrogen production facility means green hydrogen isn't something they can buy into from a cost standpoint, even if they want to go green. That being said, climate experts often discuss how hydrogen will play an important role in creating a decarbonized economy. Can you elaborate on how electric hydrogen is providing solutions for hard-to-decarbonize industries in order to help them reduce their carbon footprints? What is your go-to-market strategy? Yeah, so that that's a that's a great question. I think it's it, our focus purely on industrial customers is one that is unique in some ways because I think a lot of a lot of people when they think about hydrogen they think about hydrogen fuel cells they think about hydrogen powered cars or hydrogen powered buses. I think we we are very much focused on those big applications that are these true heavy industry, the types of facilities that most people don't come in contact with on, on a regular basis that are located far away from big cities out there where, where law and important work gets done, but that classically has is, is been kind of dirty. And we believe that direct electrification, you know, battery electric vehicles, things of that nature make lots of sense for light duty transportation, things of, things of those nature. But when you get into trying to decarbonize steel production, trying to decarbonize production of ammonia fertilizer, trying to decarbonize a production of chemicals. That's something that's really tough to, to directly electrify. And those are also industrial processes, which are very well established. So there are absolutely companies out there that have different approaches to how you might be able to decarbonize individual heavy industries. But one thing that we look at is how do we limit the, the changes to these big and complicated processes that have oftentimes, you know, been refined over the periods of, of, of decades to figure out how to do this really well. How do we drop into that? So I think the, some of the earliest markets are ones that are currently utilizing, as we talked about earlier, gray hydrogen or hydrogen derived from fossil fuels. If you're already using hydrogen, you can substitute hydrogen that's been derived from renewable energy, fossil free hydrogen directly into your process because the molecules are identical once they've been produced. So those industries, you don't impact their process at all. And if you can provide, reliably provide the same hydrogen molecules from a renewable source at a lower price point, the, the ability to switch that is, 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 is relatively easy. I think that's absolutely an early focus for us. I think as you, as you look further into the future and with some of the, the recent events in the U.S., such as the Inflation Reduction Act, I think that provides new opportunities that will probably a little bit farther in the future where you start to look at the cost competitive with other fuels for, for other applications, such as marine shipping, which is something that is going to be, would be incredibly difficult to do with, you know, a container ship that's half batteries, for instance, to transport it. Liquid fuels are probably something that make a lot of sense there. And so do you end up producing you know, renewable ammonia, and is that the fuel of choice for, for shipping? So that focus on scale for us is where you'll reach the price points that make sense and, and provide the biggest impact. And I think this, this ties in well with what you've seen in the solar industry, which was, uh, you know, candidly originally, you know, rich people buying solar panels to put on their roofs because they wanted to, to look virtuous and 
Then you had uh, some, you know, tax incentives, the German feed in tariffs and whatnot. And many companies were really focused on, you know, targeting those high margin, low volume applications. Whereas you know, our DNA, where Rafi and, and, and Dave were coming from at First Solar was focused on utility scale. They were focused on making solar cheaper than coal back when that was actually insane to think about solar ever being cheaper than coal. And now it's, a, it's an axiom that solar is, you know, the cheapest power out there and coal is on its way out. And that's, that's how we view this as well as if you, if you focus on the really large applications, that's where you can have the biggest impact. It also allows you to get to a scale of deployment in the, the number of megawatts of electrolyzers that allow you to bring that cost down where it becomes more and more competitive and more and more industries are able to use this. That really is scale that, that gets you there. That's really interesting. You know, we're seeing a lot of large oil companies like Shell and Exxon and the Lindy's of the world dip their toes into hydrogen. And it almost feels like more of a PR move, if anything. Do you plan to be in competition with these types of companies or do you have any plans to partner with them? It's just such a giant elephant in the room. It's hard to imagine them not being part of this space. So I think that's a great question. I would say fundamentally, we believe in a future that does not involve significant use of, of fossil fuels. I, I think the, the less fossil fuels the world can use, the better. And hopefully here in the future, it's pretty darn close to zero. So in that way, yes, I guess we're competing with oil companies in that, you know, we don't believe that extracting fossil fuels and, and burning them in the methods that we use today really fundamentally makes sense for the future, for, for, for the world. That being said, I think that there, there probably is an opportunity to, to leverage the learnings that a lot of those big organizations have created. And, and in fact, you know, you know, Equinor is one of our investors that has classically, you know, had a, a, a big business in fossil fuels, but is also very dedicated to the energy transition. Uh, and providing the, the energy the world needs in a form that is, is sustainable, but also cost competitive in the future. And so I would, I would not at all be surprised if many major oil companies, if they have not already in the near future, start to dedicate more and more serious resources toward, uh, toward hydrogen and specifically toward, you know, green hydrogen, or they may try other colors as well, but the, it, it just, it makes a lot of sense. They have expertise in, 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 in sourcing and producing and transporting energy containing gases and liquids. And those hydrocarbons, the hydrogen in there is, is a really important part of what's going on. I mean, when you burn hydrogen, you, it, this is really darn similar to burning natural gas. It's if you don't emit the negative emissions of, of CO2. So there could be some, some oil majors out there now that are doing this just because it's a PR move. But fundamentally, the, if the costs make sense, I think that you're going to see a lot of those integrated oil companies exploring this more heavily. And I think over time, many hydrocarbon businesses will become hydrogen businesses. And you'll start seeing things like electrofuels, like methanol produced from renewable, from hydrogen that is recombined with CO2. And that becomes a fuel for, for a car or a truck. And you'll start seeing production of, of fuels like ammonia that becomes shipping fuel and hydrogen will be used in what might have historically been natural gas pipelines 
might in the future become hydrogen pipelines. And the act of, of drawing this, this gas from a distribution network means instead of producing CO2 emissions, you're, you have water vapor that's being produced. So I do personally believe that there, there's a place for those companies to create a transition using the expertise that they have previously developed. And I certainly hope that they do. I, I want folks to cling to fossil fuels for the least amount of time possible to keep us moving in, in the right direction. Got it. And Derek, you've spoken about this a little bit, but I'd love to elaborate. The climate tech space is impacted by a multitude of geopolitical, technological, and financial trends. Obviously, the recent passage of the Inflation Reduction Act in August created major tailwinds for the clean hydrogen space. In fact, many people are comparing hydrogen's current market positioning to early stage solar and wind positioning 15 years ago. How is your company taking advantage of these positive market forces? Absolutely. So the Inflation Reduction Act, also referred to as the IRA or as IRA now, it's a colloquial name there, has been, I think, a, a massive, massive change in the U.S.'s policy of incentive for, for kind of climate tech innovation, for renewable energy and for cleaner hydrogen. I think there's, there's a couple of colors, there's green and blue and whatnot that get mixed in, in, in here with some of the incentives, but this is a really positive step. I think this is something that provides the opportunity to push many new and emerging technologies to scale quickly. That's going to deliver huge cost savings and huge environmental benefits for U.S. consumers and global consumers for, for, for years and years and years to come. That's absolutely a you know, massive tailwind behind the industry generally. I think that there, the, the Inflation Reduction Act provides for one of the first times where this is the color wheel of hydrogen becomes less relevant. They actually measure the amount of tax credit that you can achieve through the production of hydrogen based off of the carbon intensity of the hydrogen produced. So you can do it however you want, but what is the carbon intensity of the hydrogen that you've produced? And the, the strongest tax incentives are for when you are producing it in a, in a completely carbon-free manner. And it ramps off very quickly as that carbon intensity really climbs up there. I think this provides a, a really great opportunity to, to almost immediately get at the price point where it makes sense for industry to convert away from fossil fuel derived hydrogen from gray hydrogen to much better environmentally friendly fuels such as green hydrogen otherwise, but also look at other industries that, that before might have, might have not considered hydrogen as a, as a viable fuel. Now with some of the incentives that are provided, it's possible to get the price points that work and that's going to help scale the manufacturing of these electrolyzers to the point where as costs come down, that they will continue to be extremely competitive in the future with fossil, fossil fuels. And I would say, you know, there are many other tailwinds that, that we see for the industry. There have been years now of people becoming very excited about electric vehicles. People are starting to understand ubiquitously that, that, that climate change is something that matters, that decarbonizing global industry is something that matters. And that this doesn't have to be, you know, merely a scary problem with a question mark at the end that we should all be worried about, but an exciting journey along the way. I mean, companies like Tesla that, you know, we've got a bunch of folks here who, who 
who were at Tesla, that it's an exciting place to work, an exciting company to, to hear about that's doing something that's really innovative, but doing it for the right reasons with positive impacts. And that's something that really, as, as we're in this space now, which is kind of different from the early 2000s, is that, that clean tech and climate tech have gone through a few cycles. People can understand how this could potentially be done successfully and that people are, are really excited about the, the technology here as well. And so that's drawing people you know, that, that might've previously been working on robots or flying cars or, you know, at Facebook or Netflix or whatnot, and, and we're not focused on the impact that they were having on the world that now are saying, Hey, this is something that's the right thing to do. I can still really do something exciting and innovative. And that, that's, that's, that's really, that's really helpful. I think there are some headwinds though, too, which is that, that heavy industry, the stuff that really matters has been doing the same darn thing for a very long time. They're very, very slow to change. And so you've, you've got to be very dialed in with both the, the price of the, the products that you're providing with them. The technology absolutely has to work. It's got to be at a scale that's relevant. As I discussed previously, it's got to be huge. Otherwise, it can't make a dent in the places that it really matters. And just generally speaking, things, things can be slow to change at the scale that, that really matters. So that's, that, that's something that we're, we're very cognizant of, and we've really built our company around understanding. It's certainly something that we, we need to work through, but all, all in all, a lot, lot more tailwinds than headwinds. That's great to hear. And I think your point on carbon intensity is really relevant. We've seen California take the lead on using carbon intensity as their standardized metric for other relevant policies, like LCFS, and it has made a huge difference. So it's exciting to have that standardization of metrics in this space. Are there any other headwinds or tailwinds your company in particular is facing as you look to scale? Well, I think we've managed to, I think, build some excitement about what we're doing as a company. And I think, as, as you mentioned, we had a, a great Series B that we announced earlier this year. We've had fantastic investors that have been excited about what we're doing. But I think the most important part is that the important part is the team that we've built. The, the people that, that we work alongside every day uh, are tremendous and have, have created so much innovation you know, over, over the last brief period of time that this is, this is really helping us continue to grow our business to really find great talent. And I'll put a, put a plug out there right now. We're, we're always looking for really talented people interested in, in tackling deep decarbonization. So we've got a careers page at EH2. So that's EH, the number two.com slash careers. And we're on LinkedIn and Twitter and whatnot, but we are always looking for great people. We've been really successful, I think, with, with folks that have joined our team and really kind of recruiting, you know, people that they've worked with a couple of companies ago and telling them about the wonderful things that, that we're doing. That's been fantastic. And I think the, the macro economic climate right now, I think people could see isn't fantastic, but in climate tech and specifically in hydrogen, it's an exciting time. We're, uh, we're full steam ahead. People are very excited about the solution that we're, we've created and, and are bringing to market. And so for on, on our end, we've had really rapid growth and accomplished a great deal. And, and that's a product of, of finding truly talented engineers and, and other team members here that are able to, to advance our goals and, and, and want to do this for, for all the right reasons. They, they want to be part of a fast-growing company, creating great technology that's really positively impacting the world. But there's also a lot of economic opportunity here 
if you're if you're able to transition what we're doing on the global industrial scale that creates po- really positive environmental impacts really potential great economic possibility for for our team and other folks in the space so all all in all we're we're really excited about the the timing here of of when we we started this company and and when we've hit these major milestones and that's that's been exciting for us and looking forward to the future now, Derek, before I ask you this final question, I just really want to thank you for joining us on the Wharton Current. I learned a lot from this interview, and I'm sure our listeners are going to love the episode. And you kind of jumped ahead of me, but wanted to give you the opportunities we wrap up to plug anything with our listeners. You plugged the careers page, but would you like to plug socials, a newsletter, anything else? Well, thank you very much for having me. And, and I think my team will be excited that I beat you to the punch plugging our career page. That's, that's, that is, that is the thing that we, we need most is more, more and more really talented people to, to join the team. And I, I think, you know, what, what I would say kind of to end on is that this is really exciting. This is, this is a really exciting time to live in for the scale and speed of innovation that is coming, the transition to, you know, a, a new, you know, the green economy and, and the ubiquity of renewable energy that is really starting, starting to, to become reality. It's very exciting. And, and, and I think when you get to the point where you're able to create fossil free hydrogen at a price point that is truly cheaper, cheaper than oil and natural gas, that's, that's fundamentally changes everything that, that enables us to move very quickly to the future that I think we need to be in before too long. So it's exciting times. Uh, really happy to be a part of this. And and hopefully, you know, there are many of your listeners that that look into the space. And if if they don't if they don't join us, I would invite them to join someone that's out there on the on the climate tech mission because the more people that are dedicating their time and their brain power to to solving these problems, the faster we'll get to the solutions. <laughs> Thank you so much, Derek. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Wharton Current with special guest Derek Warnick from Electric Hydrogen. Join us next time as we dive into further trending topics in the energy and climate space.